All right, last Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we were looking at Luke's account of the resurrection and the empty tomb. And yet, today, as we continue on in Luke's narrative, we encounter two disciples who are deeply and desperately confused, even after they hear reports of the empty tomb and even after they hear the message from the angels. Uh, But the reason for their confusion, I think, is fairly simple. They have just lived through two things that no one among them had imagined was possible. First, they had all hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but none of them had a version of the Messiah's story that included Jesus being crucified. And in their defense, how exactly would being executed by the very ruling powers you were supposed to overthrow count as deliverance? And who could have dreamt that the Lord's anointed, you know, literally it's what Messiah means, uh, that the Lord's anointed would be executed by pagans. I mean, what, how would that work? So they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but then the Romans executed him. So where does that leave them? Where does it leave Jesus? Second, no one expected the resurrection of a single person right in the middle of the present age. Uh, Those back then who believed in the resurrection believed largely what we do, which is that it was going to happen at the end of the age, and that it would happen to everyone, or at least all of the righteous, more or less at once. If God were to resurrect one person right now in the middle of the present age, what would that even mean? My point, as we get to our passage this morning, is simply this. We often, in hindsight, act as though the resurrection just answered every single question. But for Jesus' followers, even the empty tomb, at least initially, raised more questions than it answered. The resurrection didn't mean that now, all of a sudden, Jesus' life and ministry fit perfectly with their expectations for the Messiah. Quite the reverse. His resurrection meant that their expectations had been even further off than they thought following the crucifixion. And so the question now is, for Jesus' followers, if he is alive, what does that mean? For Jesus, for them, and for the world. Look with me, if you would, at Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Luke writes this. It says, Now that same day, two of them... Uh, followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Uh, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, well, what are you discussing together as you two walk along? They stopped, stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know all the things that have happened in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Then the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. What's more, it's the third day since that all took place, and now some of our women have amazed us. They went to his tomb early this morning, 
but they didn't find his body. They came back and told us they'd, they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he, he was alive. Some of our companions went back down to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. You can imagine them both kind of just shrugging at this point. But Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to understand all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as as though he were going further. But they urged him strongly, no, no, stop, stay with us. It's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It's a cool story. Uh, And and once more, just to frame things here, the question the disciples are, are discussing as they walk together is, what in fact does it mean that this guy who they thought was the Messiah had been crucified and now possibly had been resurrected? And what's really fun about this story, I think, is that it's Jesus himself, kind of incognito, who answers their questions and provides the explanation. So what does Jesus say about this thing? Well, first, Jesus suggests that their confusion and disappointment are the result of having the wrong expectations. Look again at verse 25. Jesus says, I think good-naturedly, that they've been foolish and slow to understand what the prophets have spoken. In other words, Jesus says, it was all right there. It was right there for you to see, but you didn't see it. And so they had expected the wrong things. The plan, Jesus said, all along was for the Messiah to suffer and die. And then Jesus took them back, back to Moses, and all the way through the Jewish scriptures. And he explains to them how the plan of God from the very beginning had just reached its climax right before their eyes. And while we don't have the full explanation that Jesus provided them, the bottom line was this, that even though it was really hard to understand, especially until it happened, uh, the plan was always for the Messiah to suffer and die on humanity's behalf as our representative and substitute. The Messiah had come not just to free Israel from Roman oppression, from one kind of evil, but to free all creation from all sin and evil. That means the cross was not a detour. Uh, It wasn't an unexpected setback. It wasn't a wrench in the divine plans. This is what God had planned all along. This was the only way that God could be reconciled to the people he created and loved so deeply and still do justice for sin and the harm that sin had wrought on his good world. The cross was always the plan. Okay, so the cross was the plan, but where does that leave them as his followers? Well, if Jesus is in fact risen, and they're by the end of the story going to get some some pretty definitive proof on that count, then the cross was not just God's plan. 
It was also his victory. Notice in verse 26, Jesus says that the Messiah's suffering wasn't just the plan, it was the means by which he would enter his glory. Here, I think we need to stop for a second, and we need, if we can, to to step out of our Christian shoes and recognize just how counterintuitive that really is, how counterintuitive it would have been to them and still is for many people today. I mean, we take it for granted now. We look back with the benefit of hindsight in 2,000 years of Christian theology. But, but the idea that suffering and death could somehow be victory was surely as confusing to them then as it is to many people today. In fact, I'd suggest to you uh, that the only reason that makes any sense to any of us today is because of the way Christians came to understand the cross. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I remember, sixth grade, and uh, my family was sitting around talking, and somehow it came up that my brothers and I had never seen Star Wars. And my dad was flabbergasted. He said, what, what do you mean? You, you've never seen any of the Star Wars movies? You know, to which we responded, Dad, you know, sixth grade, fourth grade, second grade, how on earth would we have seen a movie that came out like a hundred years ago unless you showed it to us? My dad said, okay, fine, it's, it's decided this Friday, we're all watching Star Wars together as a family. And so we did. You know, he rented the movie, and we all sat there just, just mesmerized, electrified, as we watched Star Wars on this 27-inch tube TV. And I just remember, I, I was so wound up by the end of it. I mean, it was just unlike anything I had ever seen. My mind was racing, and I just couldn't wait to tell all my friends that they had to see this movie. And so sure enough, that weekend as I saw friends, you know, I was almost hysterical. I'm grabbing them by the shoulders. You've got to see Star Wars. And they're like, okay, okay, what's it about? And I'm like, well, there's, there's aliens and there's laser swords uh, and, and, and there's this evil empire and there's spaceships, to which most of my friends were like, that sounds really crazy and mostly ridiculous. And I said, listen, you just, I can't explain it to you. You just got to, you have to watch it. And, you know, over the next couple of weeks, uh, they all took turns renting the two copies we had at our local Blockbuster, uh, and they watched it. And then to my great frustration, they all kind of circled back to me and said something to the effect of, we watched it, and it was awesome, nothing at all like what you explained to us, right? And what I learned through that experience is that some things in life just can't really be explained or understood until you experience them, you know, like lightsabers, Jedi, and the way that death on a cross could be God's great victory. Sometimes only understanding can only come afterward. Jesus' disciples had inherited uh, and grown, developed the wrong expectations about the Messiah, and that had made understanding Jesus' mission and death almost impossible. Only afterward, as they looked back on it through the lens of the resurrection and with a little expository help from Jesus, could they finally begin to grasp the magnitude and majesty of what God had done in Christ. This is a little nerdy moment here, but part of what I love about the New Testament and the form in which we have it is that we basically get to watch as those first Christians figured out ways to talk about this new and exciting and totally unexpected development. It's an explosion of theology 
and, and creativity. Uh, Paul will say that the cross disarmed the powers of evil by satisfying all the accusations that rightly stood against us. Uh, others will say that the cross ransomed us because God in Christ paid our debts. Others will, will use the language of Jesus breaking the chains of sin by his perfect obedience, even to death on a cross. I mean, you can see that stream of creativity continuing even in what we sang this morning. What we see is that once their eyes are opened by what God was doing, once his followers see that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead, the followers of Jesus are finally able to see his death for what it was. God's great once-for-all victory over sin and evil. In, in Jesus, sin and evil had been defeated, just as God had planned all along. All right, so the first thing that Jesus clears up for his disciples is that the cross was God's plan and his great victory. Uh, but there's a second question, a uh, big question, I think, at least one more, that still needs some clarification. And that is, what does it mean that the resurrection appears to have started right now, right smack in the middle of the present age? Now, I know that sounds a little odd, but stick with me here. If you remember, at the beginning, I pointed out that at the beginning, uh, or that one of the reasons that everyone was so confused is that no one had expected one single person to be resurrected all by themselves. Again, those who believed in resurrection, they had a, a picture of it happening for everyone more or less all at once at the end of the age. So once Jesus' followers saw that, yes, he in fact has been raised from the dead, the question became, what does it mean that God has started this right here and right now and with Jesus? Well, there are, of course, as you might imagine, a lot of answers to that question, but I'd like to focus this morning on one that I think doesn't get enough attention. And to do that, I just need to give you a little insight into how Jesus' contemporaries would have thought about the time in which they lived. They would have <coughs> excuse me, thought of themselves as living in the middle of what they would have called the present evil age. Pretty straightforward. It was the present, and anywhere they looked, they could see evil. So there you go, present evil age. Uh, and they would have looked ahead to a time when God was going to deal decisively and finally uh, with sin, where he was going to judge sin and evil, and he was going to vindicate the righteous and the faithful, including uh, the righteous who had already passed away. Uh, and, and eventually, they came to have the expectation that the Messiah would be the agent by which God would do those things. And that time, and, and the time to follow, they thought of as the age to come, or the kingdom of God. And they called it those things because it was in the future, and it was characterized by the rule of God. So what does it mean then that God has raised Jesus now in the middle of what still looked like the present evil age? Well, as they, as they reflected back on what God had done, the logic eventually went like this. If the age to come was characterized by resurrection and the rule of God, and if Jesus had been raised from the dead and revealed as the world's rightful Lord, well, then the age to come must have started now. God's future, his good future, his kingdom, must have broken into our present. Uh, you can think of it like this. 
Uh, if I knew that you had friends visiting in May, but they showed up this week, and I asked you next Sunday, uh, when does your visit with your friend start? You wouldn't say, well, it starts in May, because that's when it's scheduled. You would say, well, they're here now, so it, it started this week, right? If the age to come is characterized by resurrection and by God's rule, then they decided that must mean God's future, his good future, has broken into our present. It started now. Evil is still here, yes, but it's already been dealt the decisive blow by the cross. And no, the rule of God is not universal, it's not everywhere yet, but it is present everywhere people gather together to proclaim Jesus as Lord. The only conclusion they could draw was that the time they had all been waiting for and looking forward to had come. Uh, a couple years ago, my family took a trip to Arizona, and as part of that, we wanted our girls to see the Grand Canyon. We tried to prepare them. You know, we showed them pictures. We tried to explain to them the size of it. You know, there's all these analogies about big buildings that you could fit inside the canyon. But we also knew that you, know, you can tell that there, there's just, they can't quite get there. We know that no matter what we say, they, they can't picture what they're about to experience. What that meant for us on a practical level is that when we were on driving that last stretch to the canyon, we were peppered with questions. Is that the Grand Canyon? No, that's a drainage culvert. Was that the Grand Canyon? Like, no, that's just a, that's just a valley. Is that the Grand Canyon? No, that's, you know, it's just land, okay? It's... Just land. And finally, I said to him, listen, if, if you just have to keep asking questions, go ahead. But I promise you, when we get to the Grand Canyon, you'll know it. And you know what? I was right. When they finally get to the rim of the Grand Canyon, there's no more questions. There was only awe. Wow. So big. So amazing. So beautiful. It's possible that nothing could have really prepared the disciples for the full scope of Jesus' earthly work. Jesus himself certainly tried. We've got a lot of records of that in the Gospels. But their expectations were just too different. Jesus' mission, it turns out, was just too much bigger, too much greater. They were thinking in terms of Israel and Roman oppression. Jesus was thinking in terms of new creation and the end of sin and evil. But once they saw it, once it became clear and obvious that God had raised Jesus from the dead, they got it. All of a sudden, they knew what they were looking at, just like our two guys when they stopped to have dinner after their walk. All of a sudden, they knew that they were looking at the kingdom of God, that in Jesus, God's rule had come to earth, that God's future had broken into their present. In a short time, the 120 followers of Jesus who had been gathered in Jerusalem at his crucifixion, this group of 120 confused and disappointed disciples transforms into a host of powerful and persuasive witnesses to the gospel. They have witnessed the crucifixion. They have seen and talked to and eaten with the risen Jesus. And maybe just as importantly, as they looked back on those events, they have come to understand what they mean. They have realized that this is where Scripture was pointing 
all along. And now, as time unfolds, they go out into the world and they will do for others what Jesus first did for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They will explain that on the cross and resurrection, God in Christ has done all that he promised and more than anyone expected. Now, before I wrap up, this is just some free bonus content for you here. Uh, I have to throw in because this, it occurs to me every time I read this passage, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to assume it occurs to some of you. It occurs to me when I read this that, man, it would have been great if Luke could have, you know, recorded verbatim Jesus' entire explanation, right? I mean, wouldn't that have been nice? He could have put a little appendix maybe at the end of his gospel, you know, Appendix A, Jesus' seminar on how all the Jewish scriptures pointed to him and to his work. I mean, think about that. Jesus, in his own words, explaining how scripture pointed to him. You know, sign me up for that book. Uh, it's a common reaction, I think. And yet, you know, as I thought about that this week, it occurred to me that that is, in fact, what we have in the New Testament, thanks to the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is what we have. And think about it. The Gospel of Luke and Matthew and Mark and John are all precisely this kind of explanation. I mean, try it sometime, read through a Gospel and make note of how many references there are to the Old Testament, of how many times one of them says explicitly, these things happened to fulfill what was written in the Scriptures. That's what they're doing. John explicitly, John opens his Gospel with the note, I am writing these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, second volume of Luke's work, and Peter is going to stand before a crowd of thousands of Jews, and he is going to do exactly the kind of thing that Jesus did for these two. His whole, his whole sermon is an argument that draws on the Jewish scriptures and, and claims that they are pointing to Peter's conclusion, which is... Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Acts 2.36. You know, once that occurred to me, I, I think it, le it left me with two really two cool conclusions from this passage. First, Jesus was actually the first person to proclaim the gospel about Jesus. I think that's pretty cool. Think about that. The explanation that Jesus gives to his two disciples is the first record we have of an explanation of how God in Christ conquers sin and death, thereby making salvation available to all who believe and all according to the scriptures. That message, the message that we believe and we proclaim, started right here with Jesus himself. That leads neatly to my second conclusion which is the gospel Jesus shared here in Luke 24 is the same gospel that you and I believed and profess today. The same message that transformed the confusion and disappointment of those two disciples into joy, that's the same message that Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 to thousands of Jews in a way that cut them to the heart. It's the same message that Paul preached in Rome at the end of, of Acts, in the heart, the very center of the pagan empire. That's the message that we've been entrusted with here today in South Minneapolis. Listen, it occurs to me 
it's hard to miss it, that, that if a lot of things are going on right now that are very discouraging to people for a whole variety of reasons, everywhere you look, you can find stuff that'll discourage you, especially if you like looking for those kinds of things. But I can't help but conclude, based on our passage today, that a message that could transform hearts and lives and empires then will surely be able, there's no reason to think it won't be able, to transform hearts and lives and nations today. There's no reason not to believe that. The message that has been entrusted to us is the same message Jesus shared with these two, the same message that has been transforming lives all around the world for thousands of years. If you want to place your hope in something, I'd place it in that. May God, by his Spirit, grow his kingdom.